The Bible has a lot of important things to say about evil. Uh, Proverbs 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred uh, of evil. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. But evil is not just an idea. It's not just a concept. Evil is something that actually seeks to uh, confront us as believers. We think about that most beloved psalm, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The presence and the influence of evil will surface in people's lives fear and anxiety. And it's not just something that confronts us. It's something that we are doing battle against. Paul says in Ephesians 6, For our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. How do we respond to the presence and the influence of evil in its various forms? The author N.T. Wright, in his book, Evil and the Justice of God, says three things about evil. One, we usually ignore evil until it hits us in the face. Two, when it does hit us in the face, we're surprised. And three, as a result, we often respond to that in immature ways. Well, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 26. And we see the presence and the influence of evil up close and personal. And we'll also see how the disciples respond in very fearful ways, immature ways, to the presence of evil. And yet we also see how God's ways are trustworthy even in the midst of evil. So it's Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 47. Continuing in Matthew, Jesus has been with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion. So listen now to God's word. Matthew 26, 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Well, we see evil confronting righteousness in this narrative. 
evil seeking to even confound that which is holy, the Son of God. We see this evil, wicked person, Judas, come right up to the face of Jesus, right into the presence of that most holy Son of Man, and give to him a traitor's kiss. Evil can come in very close proximity to the things of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God, even the Son of God. Evil is just a concept until it comes very close to home. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, many people gathered around Ground Zero in New York uh, to remember those fallen uh, for 9-11, the 9-11 attacks, uh, to pray for those families as they have done each the last 18, 19 years, those who lost loved ones. Uh, 20 years ago in 2000, the year before 9-11, for many people, terrorism was just a foreign word. It was a foreign idea in many ways. It was something that happened, but it happened out there, not here. Some other part of the world, not here at home. It was something known by the Department of Defense, not by you and me. But for many people and nations, 9-11 changed the way people viewed evil. It brought it very close to home, too close to home. Well, here in the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane, we begin to see evil up close and personal. And not only does the deception and betrayal come from within the rank and file of the twelve, Judas, if that's not close enough... Once the chief priests and the elders lay their hands on Jesus, and Jesus mysteriously does not resist, it's all way too close for the disciples. They can't handle it. They simply leave the Lord and they flee. They don't understand. This cannot be good. So I want us to see a few things. One is the presence of evil in this God's world. This is his world, and evil is, a, is, is, a, is, in, is in it. Two how disciples will often respond in carnal, worldly ways with worldly weapons against a spiritual battle. And three, how God's will prevails in the midst of it. So so notice then how living in God's world and kingdom means at times living in the pressure and the presence of evil. Earlier that night, Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room. They had celebrated the Passover meal. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He took bread. He took the cup. And then Jesus, remember, said in verse 22 of this chapter, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And Judas answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said, you have said so. How unsettling for the disciples. Uh, How will this betrayal unfold? What will this mean for the twelve? How is this going to affect ministry? And then they sang a hymn at the close of their time. They went out to the Mount of Olives and then entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. From the time they left the upper room to the time they entered the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples' number went from 12 to 11. One was missing. Judas had peeled off. But they weren't just missing one, there was betrayal. There was evil lurking beneath the surface the disciples didn't know. So things are beginning to shift. The momentum is shifting, 
Because not only has Judas gone to alert the chief priests and the elders of Jesus' whereabouts, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples had been witnessing their Lord in tremendous agony, as we saw last week. At least Peter, James, and John must have witnessed some of Jesus' deep agony. What is he going through and why? And then we come to our text in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, he's speaking to his disciples. He's exhorting Peter, James, and John, stay alert, keep watch, remain in prayer. And behold, Judas comes. And the text says, Judas, one of the twelve. And that's meant to grab us and shock us. One of the twelve from among one chosen of the apostles, he comes to betray. But it's not just Judas. It says, with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. There is a tension in this moment and a sense of tragedy for the disciples and their ministry. In many ways, their backs are against the wall. Everything now seems to be going against the Lord and his ministry. He's been in agony. Judas has betrayed him. Even the crowds seem to be shifting in their view. Remember, through Matthew's gospel and many of the gospels, uh, the crowds generally have been very supportive of Jesus. They've been attracted to his ministry. But now that seems to be shifting. There's a breakdown in popular opinion. And it's going to reach its climax when the crowds in the next chapter choose Barabbas to be spared of death. And it's the crowds who cry out louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him. There is hostility. There's hatred for the Son of Man. All this is beginning to shake and really knock the disciples off their ministry course, their intended course. Sometimes we're shaken. Sometimes we, in our individual lives, in the life of the body of Christ, are knocked off our intended course. This picture in the garden looks quite different than the picture post-resurrection in the apostles' lives, in the early chapters of Acts. They're going to face persecution and suffering, but the Holy Spirit is poured out in great measure, and the church adds numbers and numbers. But here the picture is different. Their, their backs are against the wall. They are fearful and they are uncertain. We know that they're going to flee the Lord. John Piper, in his book, Spectacular Sins, says a few words here. It's a longer quote, but it's worth hearing. Piper says this, I'm writing this book to build a vision of God into our lives that will not let us down in the worst of times. I mean really bad times, horrific times. Who's prepared to meet the agony that is coming? Times are coming when shepherds will say again to their flock, as they've done in days gone by from Revelation, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I am deeply thankful for Christian counseling to make my marriage better. But in addition, I need a shepherd who will tell me 
quote, the devil may kill you, but that's okay. Jesus will give you the crown of life. Along with the tender words of daily blessings, I need the tough warning that the beast will win for a season. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain, Revelation 13. I need the warning that the great Babylonian whore will one day be drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, Revelation 17. These horrors are in the Bible, God's word. Where's the shepherd who's preparing the saints for this kind of future? What answer could he give to our questions? What answer would fit with the upbeat entertainment mood today? Where in the West do we hear the answer from Revelation 12? They've, con- they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The pressure is on for the disciples. It says a great crowd with swords and clubs came. It's a mob made up of Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders. And after Judas, in this act of betrayal, says to the Lord, Greetings, Rabbi. And by the way, every time that the address Rabbi is used of Jesus in Matthew, it's always by a non-disciple. And that's what greeting Judas gives. And he kisses him, likely on both cheeks, as was customary in Israel in that day, still in many parts of the world today. It's a sign of affection, but Judas uses it to sell the Lord out. In verse 50, the guards, they lay their hands on Jesus to seize him. And what happens? What is the response? Verse 51, one of those with Jesus, John's gospel tells us it's Peter. Doesn't surprise us necessarily. He he draws his sword and he strikes the servant of the high, high priests, cutting off his ear. It's a dramatic scene. And uh, while Peter's intentions may be good, he's seeking to protect the Lord, seeking to safeguard Christ's kingdom from injustice and evil, the Lord disapproves of what Peter did, seeking to take the law into his own hands. And uh, there's a great question, important applications drawn by Peter's response. How do we respond? How do you respond when evil threatens to undo the things that we cherish? When society is seeking to undermine the values of the church, marriage, life, family? How do we feel when moral evil, or we might say natural kinds of evils, like a hurricane, a pandemic, floods, fires, disrupt our lives or our worship or our solidarity? How then shall we live? Peter's response? Get angry. Draw the sword. This can't be This cannot be the will of God. It must be stopped. But there's something, there's someone behind what is happening that is greater than all these things. You see the massive contrast 
in this story between the fear, the uncertainty of Peter and the disciples. They're all going to leave the Lord. They're going to flee. Contrast that with the absolute rock-solid character and confidence of our Lord Jesus Christ. He not only says to Judas when he comes, friend, do what you came to do. He's fully aware. He knows what's happening. There's a much greater story and plot unfolding that none of them know. But then he says to Peter, put back your sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's another way of saying, I got this. This is under my control, not under theirs, not under yours, under mine. From a merely external view, things do not appear to be going well. What good can possibly come out of a betrayal? Out of the Lord's arrest? Out of his suffering? Out of evil? Out of a crucifixion? What good can come out of COVID? A 9-11, a Gethsemane? Yet what does our Lord say? Verse 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And verse 56, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. There is a grand story unfolding that goes well beyond what the crowds can see, what the disciples understand, what the chief priests see. So the question is not, do you like what is happening? The question is, do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of it? Are you demonstrating trust, disciples, in the midst? God will not only use evil for good, he has written evil into the story for his good purposes. We see this in the life of Joseph. We heard it earlier in the text that was read from Genesis 50. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. God intended it so that through him he would preserve the lives of his people. Genesis 50, 19, Joseph said, Do not fear, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. He intended that evil for good to sustain the lives of many. The same act of evil carried out by the hands of men, God intended it and purposed it for his glorious purposes. And yet in a much more profound way, we see it in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, the early believers were praying and they said these words, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In the one act of Christ's betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, the wicked hand, the will of man was working against the Lord. And in that same act, God's predestined and eternal will was being carried out. 
not only can good come out of evil, our salvation rests in Christ upon a God who ordained and used the greatest act of evil, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of Man to rescue us from sin and death. God's ways are not our ways. But God's ways are solid. God's will and ways are solid. Just a couple of days ago, I was listening to one of my Old Testament uh, professors, Bruce Waltke, and he was sharing a story that one of his friends shared about his great-grandfather who lived in the late 1800s and was from Sewanee, Georgia. This gentleman had never been to the north, but he found himself for the first time in his life traveling north and in the dead of winter having to cross the Susquehanna River. And it was frozen over. But he had never seen such a river frozen over, and he was very uncertain of its stability. So this man got down on all fours as he began to make his way out on the river. He got his first palm onto the ice and his second palm, and then with some timidity got his knee out onto the ice and his other knee, and he's on all fours inching his way across this frozen over river. And he only made it a foot or two, and all of a sudden he heard this rumbling sound behind him. And he turned around, and behind him was a wagon flying down the hill, drawn by four horses, smack dab right onto the ice, went right by the man, across the whole river, up the other side, and kept on going. Now, the man on all fours felt a little bit small and a little bit foolish. But it is a great picture of what biblical trust and biblical faith really looks like. It's also a picture of the degrees of faith that believers can have. Sometimes we're inching our way at times with fear and uncertainty across that solid river, that solid ice. Sometimes that happens in our lives. But we are to remember that God's ways... God's will, like that ice, they are rock solid. It is rock solid. It's a great encouragement and reminder. We're to throw ourselves out in trust and build our lives, continue to build our lives upon the Lord. His, his will and his word is good. It is trustworthy. We can count on it. Even if the eyes in our head don't see and understand the eyes of our hearts are to trust in the Lord, continue building our lives upon him. Let's pray to our God. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sacrificial death of your son for us. And Lord, we can relate to the disciples with that timidity or uncertainty or fear as they left him and fled. And yet we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us courage, that you would give us confidence, that we would continue to build our lives with the assurance of faith upon Christ, who is our solid rock. Grow us, Lord, in faith and in trust. Lord, cause us to continue building our lives upon your will and your word. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.